While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus. Jairus. The sanctum. Synagogue leader, your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, don't be afraid, just believe. Right. <laughs> Great job. Great job. Yeah, that synagogue word, that's a big one. Uh, we, had, we had practiced, uh, but sometimes, you know, practice, you just, you still can't decipher what the word is so uh, but kids go ahead uh, you're going to be dismissed on into uh, children's church and as I uh, stood here getting ready for Ellie to come up here I, uh, I realized I didn't put on the microphone because it's been like four weeks since I've preached and I completely forgot about it so this is where this is where I'm going to be uh, if you if you want to meet me this is where I'll be. I don't know about you guys, but uh, this is where I will be. Um, man, I was completely blown away when we received the the text from Adam with the list of songs that we are singing this morning. Because uh, if you guys know anything about Adam, he does not like playing Christmas songs. Um, and so he, uh, when, when I got that text, Casey and I looked at each other and we go, for a man that doesn't like playing Christmas songs, this is a lot of them. Um, but man, it's it's good to it's good for you all to finally catch up where I've been since November first, because I've been celebrating Christmas since uh, since November first, and because uh, I I love Christmas. I had a couple people that uh, that I like been razzing about Christmas starts November first. They finally text me uh, on Saturday saying, "Hey, just so you know, I decorated early because it's still November," and, uh, I, and they sent me some pictures of their of their house, and I was like, you know what? I would get on to you about that, but I'm just glad that you finally have, have decided to start celebrating Christmas because it's such a magical time of the, of the year where, you know, it's not just about even like, you know, yes, the Savior coming into the world is an awesome thing, but it's just like this overflowing moment of just kind of like joy that everybody kind of has. And so all that to be said, our sermon this morning is not about Christmas. So missed the mark on that one, didn't I? I prepped it all before Adam, you know, gave me his, his list, and then we left, you know, for Thanksgiving, and so I had already prepared all of this, but we are going to talk about Black Friday, so that's kind of like, kind of like Christmas, not really, but who went, uh, who went Black Friday shopping over the weekend? Anybody? Raise your hands. If you went to a physical store and, and shopped for Black Friday, uh, maybe it was Walmart, uh, did anybody go to uh, Walmart before Thanksgiving? Did anybody like show up in the store before? Was that like the biggest regret you've ever made in your life? Because I feel like that that might be up there with worse than Black Friday even. Because everybody's shopping for one specific thing, you know, like everybody's trying to get the last yam can of yams or whatever uh, that that they need for their sweet potato casserole or their pie or whatever. But we went. We went in a couple different places. I didn't go all the places that Casey went. I just went to, you know, the main ones, uh, Best Buy. That's pretty, that was the only one I went to because uh, I love it. I love Best Buy. I worked, I worked at Best Buy. If you guys didn't know this, I worked at Best Buy for almost seven years. I had seven Black Fridays that I worked at, at Best Buy. And uh, some pretty crazy stories that, uh, that went along with working at, at Best Buy on Black Friday. But I, I always feel like I kind of need to, like I, do, like, I owe it to the people that work 
on Black Friday that I should just show up. Because they have to be there anyways. You might as well like be there and spend some money and at least make it feel like, hey, you know, at least you're here. And they're like, I was a part of the time where they transitioned out of this. This is just a side note. I was a part of the time where they transitioned from like it actually being on Friday to it being on Thursday. And everybody was always up in arms about like having to like that they were opening on Thursday. But from a worker stand like side of it, we had to be at the store at, at 2 a.m. on Black Friday anyways because the store would open at 4 and we had to prep the floor for it. So getting up versus going into the store seemed easier to me like to like go in on fr- on Thursday. They also paid you time and a half. And so I got even more money. So don't feel so bad for them. I mean, that's a little bad, but like Penny's opened at 2 and I don't like I don't understand that, but but nonetheless, Black Friday shopping, shoulder to shoulder, kind of going through. It's not super crazy anymore cuz a lot of like the online side of stuff has changed a lot of that. But this Shoulder to shoulder is kind of what got me thinking about the text that we're actually reading from today. So does anybody, uh, does anybody like to be hugged? Is anybody like super, like a hugger that loves being hugged? All right. We're going to do a little experiment. All right. So stand up. Everybody. All yous. All y'alls. We were in Oklahoma for a couple days, so uh, it's all y'alls. All right. So stand up. Look to the person next to you and extend your hand and shake their hand. Take a moment. Take a moment. Greet some people around you. Say hi. Say Merry Christmas. All right. So go back to your seats. Now, stay standing. Oh, sorry. Sorry to make you... Uh, stay standing. Now, look to the person that you just... You, you started out shaking their hand, all right? Now, do this motion. All right, now sit down. <clears throat> Did it make anybody, like, super uncomfortable with the idea of uh, going to, like, hug the person next to them? No. Maybe not. Anybody get just some extreme anxiety where you're just like, I don't want to hug this person? Don't raise your hand because then you'll make that person feel uncomfortable. Uh, was anybody uncomfortable with this, like the handshaking and like this this greeting one another kind of thing? Sometimes, sometimes it can be a little uncomfortable. It can cause a little bit of anxiety. Maybe you're somebody that you know nobody shook their hand, or a lot of people didn't shake your hand. So you're like kind of like wondering, like, do I smell? Is there something about me? Was it the way I dressed? You know, kind of like all these different things. But if you guys do any any kind of study about this idea of touch, this idea of hugging or hand-holding, you start to realize that, that this is actually kind of a, a big deal in our culture. And they've done quite a few studies now just on the infant side of stuff about the importance of, of touching and holding and interacting with the babies. And I don't know what parents like sign their kids up like for these experiments, but that's not the point. The experiment happened. I don't agree with the process, but the experiment happened, and they, they kind of they follow along these kids in this scenario where one child is, is affectionately loved and touched and held and cared for in that, that physical way, and then there's the other child 
that was you know left in the crib and that was taken care of like food wise and and you know all the necessities of changing diapers and things like that and the thing is is like when we think about this experiment we were kind of like well that's that's kind of cruel that seems weird again who would who would sign their child up for these kind of experiments while that seems strange it's not necessarily outside of the norm of society there are people in the world there are parents in the world that have chose to do this this process of not picking up their child you know they they kind of justify it with things like you know they're going to they're going to learn to to cling to you you know they're not going to be able to to get away from from you and, and there's some there's some science to both sides but but this was an extreme experiment you know where they just never were and they can see how in these scenarios where somebody that wasn't affectionately touched that that person just seems kind of emotionally distant they seem different they don't connect the same as everybody else and so this is a serious thing and it's carried somewhat into our world as adults you know it's always easy whenever we kind of talk about things like oh that's something that kids deal with but it's actually something that we as adults deal with as well you know, we all are getting so comfortable with this, you know, the phone side of stuff, the technology side of stuff, where we feel like we're connecting to people by talking to them through messengers or talking to them, you know, on the phone or, or emailing them or texting them or whatever the FaceTime even. You know, we think, oh, well, I, I saw that person because I FaceTimed with them. But it's definitely not the same. And we'll get into a lot of that as we kind of go through this. But what I wanted to focus in on is this, this story that Ellie read for us and kind of the big picture here. There's three main characters. First one is obviously Jesus. We have this beautiful story of Jesus that depicts something that you don't really see in any of the other uh, scriptures or any of the other uh, miracles that, that he performs. Something special that happens in this one. But then we also have these two women so if you want to go ahead and open up to, to Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. So we've been going through this series on Mark. And just to kind of give you a, a glimpse into what we're doing going forward, we uh, will have this sermon that comes out of Mark. But then I, I'll preach the Sunday before Christmas, so we will have a Christmas uh, sermon, just, just so you guys know. It's not, we're not going to just keep trudging through Mark and making it connect, but you know, it's, it's only December 1st, so I feel like we can, we can kind of glean something from Mark here. So Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then come one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a crowd, a great crowd followed him, thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, rather grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she, or, for she said, 
if I even or if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who'd done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and, and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what he said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John and the brother, the, John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was, taking her by the hand and said to her, Tilitha, kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. All right, so lots of scripture, lots of great scripture. Lots packed into the scripture, but we're going to kind of focus in on three main things. Like I said, we're going to focus in on Jesus. We're going to focus on one of the woman, one of the women, and the other woman. All right. So Jesus here is kind of this rock star, this big personality that's coming through town. So wherever Jesus was, he always had a huge crowd following him. Imagine, kind of like in our time frame, if you were to pack all of the like famous people well i don't i don't know if i would say famous but like these like famous well makers like these people that are like are striving to to make you better to to improve you okay so think of like you know dr phil oprah winfrey you know maybe billy graham or, or rob bell back in the day uh or like uh you know you have amazing musicians like the beatles kind of like this all packed into one person and then times that by 100. And that's kind of where Jesus was in this culture. And we have to think about, we have, we have a time where there wasn't social media. You know, Jesus wasn't sending it out over, over Facebook that he was going to be in this area at this time for any healing that anybody wanted to partake in. No, this was just people saying, hey, I had seen Jesus go this way. If you need him, you, you better catch up. He's going he's gonna to keep moving. Or I just saw him get in a boat. I bet he's most likely going to the other side of the sea. And then they go all the way around and catch up to him. And there's people that have probably been trying to get a hold of him for weeks, months, hoping, man, that, hoping they just kind of stumble across the city that, that he happened to be in. You know, there was no sending Jesus a quick text 
to say, hey, my, my daughter's dying. Could you, could you do something for me real quick? There was none of that. But Jesus was this rock star personality. And you can kind of describe Jesus, his, uh, his ministry is kind of like, where really it's like, it's like sledding, all right? So Jesus was at like this idea of you have to climb to the top of the hill to sled, right? You have to climb, climb, climb. And that, that was the beginning of Jesus' ministry, was he was climbing popularity. Everybody wanted to get to know him. Everybody wanted to see him. Everybody was hearing about how, how miraculous he was, the power of his word, the, the abilities that he had. Everybody was wanting to find him. And we haven't gotten there yet, but we will. There comes a time where Jesus goes downhill. And, you know, we, we all lead, we, we lead to that. You know, right now we're in Christmas time where we talk about the birth, but we all lead towards Easter, and, and that's where the, the second half of, of Mark sends us. <coughs> so we have this climbing of popularity, and then it's just a, a dropout of unpopular, the second half of Mark, where we kind of go from this mob of fans in the first half of the story, and then they turn into a lynch mob in the second half. And we'll unpack that as we go through it more. But today, we're going to talk on this popularity side of the story. And there's, there are three reasons that, that I really think that Jesus was, was the most popular person, maybe of, of all time, you know, but specifically for thousands of, or, you know, hundreds of years within his time frame. But these are the three reasons. And they, they all start with P, so that hoping that maybe they, they help you to kind of grasp onto it. So they were his preaching, they were his parables, and then what we saw today was his power. And we've talked a few times about his power and in, uh, in talking about some of these wow moments of Jesus, but we talked about parables. Dave talked about a lot of his parables just last week, and then we have the Sermon on the Mount being one of the most impactful sermons that Jesus ever preached. I mean, Jesus' preaching, his parables, and his power were things that, that nobody else could even come close to. I mean, so much so as preachers, it almost feels kind of futile when, when you read Jesus' word to say anything more. Because he did it. He's already said it. I mean, that's how the early church started was they would just take these letters that now we take and we take little portions of and kind of unpack, but they would just take those, those you know, the, the letters to the Corinthians, they would take that, and that was, their, that was their lesson for the day. They would just read the scripture. They would read these stories of Jesus because they were so powerful. The people loved his preaching because he taught with authority. He boldly proclaimed this message that we will come back Again and again, this idea of the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And that was something that, that the Jewish leaders weren't teaching. They weren't teaching repentance. They weren't teaching that, that they needed to turn to God. They were teaching that they needed to, to give sacrifices and that they needed to pay money and that they needed to give money. And they, Jesus is just simply saying, turn, turn to God. But there is one thing that we read about a few times so far in the gospel, and that is this main reason that he was so popular, and that it was his power. In these passages, we see Jesus is casting out demons. The scripture right before this one, Jesus casts out a demon out of a non-Jewish person. 
He releases him from the demons. And then, and then he sends the legion into the pigs. And then that's, you know, that's how we get pigs flying and stuff like that. And so, but that, that was the story right before we see here another point where Jesus has power over spiritual entities. He's power over physical ailments. Jesus has power. You take a guy who can mesmerize people with his teaching and combine it with someone who can heal the sick and restore the tortured soul, and you've got somebody that, that just simply is stated is a, is a rock star. He's, he's somebody that nobody else can compare to. So today, like I, we read from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, we see Jesus using that power and using that mesmerizing word that he has. He doesn't necessarily put it in parables and he's not necessarily preaching but the words that jesus speaks just pierce you without even knowing that he's he's trying to do it so we see that jesus heals two women so we have two kinds of touch that happen in this story and the really interesting thing about this uh, story that mark sees is really really important is this number 12 we have one woman who is 12 years old and has a life-threatening fever. And then we have the other woman who is older, but she has had this disease for 12 years. So the girl, the, very, the, the first girl, the whole reason that all of this starts is the daughter of a man named Jairus. He is the leader of, a, of the synagogue, and he's a big deal in the town. You know, he's not just kind of the regular everyday kind of like Pharisee. I mean, he is, he is the most important person in the town. And this is not just any girl. I mean, this is his daughter. That means his daughter is probably also a pretty big deal. Think of this on the scale of, you know, what would be like the president of the United States' daughter getting sick that would be kind of the level of what Jairus is right now and what his daughter is right now just to kind of give you a scale of of how important this was she was 12 years old and to be 12 in the ancient jewish village would be an equivalent to somebody being kind of like 17 to 20 in our world now she's about to become a full adult woman in the society think about this for a minute Imagine if one of the president, or imagine if the president's daughter, right, the, not now, but, you know, in the past, de- developed a, a life-threatening disease. Do you think that the president would just kind of let it happen? Or that the president would go out of his way to do whatever he can to make that go away? I'm sure they would go to the ends of the earth to find the best doctor to come and help her. I mean, and I would be positive that any doctor that would be called on by the president would drop whatever they are doing in that moment and leave and go and take care of whatever it is and try their hardest to figure it out. I mean, if if it was me, I would probably reschedule all of my appointments, probably even just say, I have no idea when I'm getting back, but this is of the most importance especially if they offered to get me on Air Force One, you know, whatever. But that's kind of what's going on here in verses 21 and 20 to 24. Jairus is the big man in town. He is so worried about his daughter 
that he walks up to Jesus in the middle of this huge crowd and falls at his feet and actually begs Jesus to come and heal her from her fever. So here you have a very popular girl, Jairus' daughter. She probably was looked to as somebody that would never need for anything, would never want for anything. Everybody knows her. Everybody's worried about her. And she's the center of the crowd's attention. And Jesus starts walking to the house. So you guys kind of have this picture going? I mean, Jesus, Jesus was ready. Jesus was willing. Jesus was excited to, to take care of this, this ailment that she had. And the people in the crowd were excited. People knew what was going on. The people had probably already heard that she was sick. But then another woman enters the scene. And who is she? She had this hemorrhage for 12 years. Now, with our modern ears, we kind of hear that and think, oh, that's kind of like, that's kind of a bummer. But what's the big deal? But something to think about, because we need to take a moment and really kind of understand the, like, the cultural reason that this was not good. You know, it's not just the, like, the burden of, of 12 years of having a menstrual cycle, but it was a social burden. The Jewish people followed the laws of Moses very carefully. The laws state that when a woman was in this cycle, she was unclean. An unclean person must remove herself from the population and live in isolation until she becomes clean. And in the case of a normal cycle, this was designed to kind of protect the woman and to keep her husband away from her during this unpleasant time and to give her time alone. She would go live in this red tent, and while she waited for her cycle to pass, then she would do the purification ceremony and be good to go until the next month. Now imagine if that never stopped. Every single day, it never stopped. No one would be around her for 12 years. 12 years of being sent to the red tent. 12 years of isolation. 12 years of, of people cycling through once a month saying, you're still here? 12 years. I can't even imagine the idea of, of what women through, went through once a month to be sent to this tent for once a month. I can't even imagine that. I mean, maybe they had other people there, but, but you remove yourself completely from society for once a month, but for 12 years. And I wonder who those people are today in our world. You know, who are these people that are so isolated, so removed, so shunned? Who is in our, in our society that's been pushed so far to the margins that they are this untouchable kind of person? So like I said, while I was studying the sermon, I came across some different terms that go along with what we're actually talking about here. One study talked about how as a world, like I said, we, as, as we kind of become more technology-driven, that we're actually becoming, it's a phrase that they're using, it's called skin hungry. And that seems kind of weird, like they want to eat skin. That's not what they're talking about. They are longing for this idea of just, even somebody simply wanting, like needing to be hugged to make us feel comfortable by placing, you know, like your, somebody's hand on your back. This longing, like, to shake somebody's hand. 
Another one that I came across was a really interesting study on how we communicate emotions through touch. And so here's, here's kind of what the study said. Here's what we did. We built a barrier in our lab that separated two strangers from each other. So we have this wall. One person would stick their arm, his or her arm, through the barrier and waited. And the other person was given a list of emotions. And he or she had to try to convey each emotion through a one-second touch to the stranger's forearm. The person whose arm was being touched had to guess the emotion. I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of fun. Uh, so the given, given the number of emotions being considered, the odds of guessing the right emotion of chant were, uh, by chance were 8%. But remarkably, participants guessed correctly nearly 60% of the time. Things like gratitude, anger, love, fear. They got those right more than 50% of the time as well. Now, they did have various kind of gender combinations in the study. And I feel obligated, just to let you guys know, to disclose two gender differences that, that they found. Uh, it says that we found. When a woman tried to communicate anger to a man, this made me laugh. Uh, when, when they tried to communicate anger to a man, he got... Zero right. Zero right. Misinterpreted. Misinterpreted completely. Um, and it wasn't even like things like, you know, like, oh, we're fine. Like they didn't say, that wasn't, there was no words. It was just touch. All right. Then I uh, lost my spot. Oh, they had no idea what she was doing. And a man tried to communicate compassion to a woman she didn't know what was going on at all. She had no clue. I think that's true for us as so many times. Like, this is just something completely separate. And we, we completely misunderstand when somebody is trying to express anger to us. And we completely misunderstand sometimes when we try and express compassion to others. But obviously, there's a bigger message here than men are from Mars and women are from Venus. It continues on. It says, touch provides in its own language of compassion a language that is essential to what it means to be human. In fact, in other research, I found that people cannot only identify love, gratitude, and compassion from touch, but they can also differentiate between the different kinds of touch. Some people haven't done as well in studies of this, like, or have done this as well in studies of like facial and even vocal communication. We long to have this touch this communication of touch we long for that this woman in mark chapter 5 musters up the courage and pushes through the crowd and touches the hem of jesus's cloak and he stops in the middle of this crowd this always blows me away every time i i hear this story i read this story he stops in the middle of the crowd and he says who touched me and think about that that black friday kind of scenario where where everybody is touching you you know, this pushing against you and bumping up against you, and everybody's wanting to everybody's wanting to get in and see see what was going on. And Jesus had this crowd of people following him to Jairus, his daughter, and they're probably yelling like, "Hey, Jesus is going to heal Jairus's daughter, guys! Come on!" Crowd growing as they move, and this woman pushes up and touches, and Jesus says, "Who touched me?" And then he sees. I love it when that when that phrase happens when Jesus says when when Scripture says Jesus sees you 
Jesus sees this woman. He sees the longing, the desperation, the courage it took for her to do what she did. He stoops down and touches her and says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Just then a message comes from Jairus' house. Jesus had taken too long. The girl is dead. And an interesting thing happens. Jesus leaves the crowd. He takes only a select few with him into a room with a dead girl. And then he touches her. So let's look at these two touches for a moment. In both cases, these were actually both completely forbidden. They were not allowed, these two touches that happen. The law of Moses clearly stated that if a person touches anybody from a red tent or a dead body, then that person would then become unclean. The uncleanliness is the powerful agent here. But when Jesus touches the unclean, the power is reversed. We've talked about this a few times. This is the beauty of the cross. We don't make Jesus unclean. And praise God for that. Nothing I've done, nothing that you have done makes Christ unclean. But what Christ did on the cross, the sacrifice Christ gave, makes us clean. It's not a swap. It's a reversal. This is the power of Jesus' touch. To make that which the law declares as unclean to be clean. I want to make one more observation that I think is really, really impressive from this story. Notice that what has happened to these two women in order to be made clean. The woman who has been on the margin of society, of this community, has to come to the center of the community in order to receive the touch of God and be made clean. All the people that she touched as she moved towards the center were technically being made unclean as she moved forward, tainted by her presence as she pressed in to find Jesus. Then we have Jairus' daughter, who enjoyed the limelight and the privilege of living in the center of community, who had to move to the outside of community. I mean, she had to die. And Jesus had to meet her in the darkness of isolation before she could receive his healing touch and be brought back to life. I do not think that these are accidental details in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus came to turn the world upside down. I mean, we're coming up to this time of Christmas where it just, in a nutshell, turns the world upside down. Birth of God into this world. God with us. Emmanuel. You know, last year, Jim brought this whole sermon series of God with us, and, and we learned how upside down that turned the world when God came and lived with us. So I don't think these are accidental details. The kingdom of God calls the marginalized to be brought into the community, and he calls the elites and the privileged to experience a death of their status. Why? Why do that? Why call the people that, that the world sees as powerful and, and impactful, why call them to die to themselves? 
Why call the people that are hiding on the outside that nobody wants to see and nobody wants to deal with, why call them in? Why not just let society be what it is and let things go? And simply this, so that we can all have life and be made clean. So here's the challenge today. We can say it again and again, but we are the body of Christ. And it's God's work, our hands. So our challenge today is this. It's to go into the world. You know, the, the sermon series that we're, we're kind of focusing in on here with this overarching question is, ask me about Sunday. How are you creating opportunities for people to hear about Jesus in your life? Are you the kind of person that when somebody hears you talk, they hear about Jesus? Not in that, like, condemning way, where they feel bad after talking to you, but in that life-giving way. How are you touching people's hearts and souls to be redeemed and to be made, made clean? How do you personally need to be touched by God? What in your life is unclean right now? What in your life feels all mixed up because you haven't given it over to Christ? Let God touch those parts of your life. Let God change those parts of your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for everything that you give. We pray as we gather around this table and focus in on the sacrifice that that you gave. I pray that we lean into that. I pray that we are giving our hearts over to you and that we are running towards you. That we are utilizing this time of communion to focus in on, on that sacrifice and remembering what was so greatly given. Father, we thank you for everything that you give. And, and this as a portion of that is for us to see how great you are. Pray for the forgiveness that you freely give and we pray for the repentance that we need to perform we pray that we focus in on all of that we pray this in christ's name amen